Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. My guest today is Peter Brown, the European Parliament's Senior Advisor on Technology Policy. And this is Peter's second time on Explain to Shane. Peter is a great guest for this show because he is an expert in both technology policy and the standards process, and both topics are currently a prime focus with the recently formed Technology and Trade Council, known as the TTC. The purpose of the TTC is to advance transatlantic cooperation and democratic approaches to trade, technology, and security. The TTC's mission encompasses enhancing trade and investment, strengthening technological and industrial leadership between the U.S. and the EU, including trustworthy artificial intelligence, along with open and reliable secure internet. Peters advised national governments, Fortune 100 companies, and international organizations on technology strategy and internet governance around innovation and the government regulatory processes. Today, Peter and I talk about the Technology and Trade Council's recent meeting that was hosted here in Washington, D.C. on December 5th of 2022. We covered how the TTC's functions what it recently deliberated on, and how the EU's policy work on AI might affect our own. Peter, welcome back to Explain to Shane. It's so exciting to have you on the show again. I'm very pleased to be here. So we've had a a lot of Europeans in Washington, D.C. this week. And um, as always, as you did such a wonderful job last time, I need you to just sort of explain some of the basics as to some of the work that has been going on. So the Trade and Technology Council was in town. Actually, they were up at the University of Maryland, which is sort of an interesting spot when you have all these places in D.C. to meet. But they, they seemed, I met with some of them last night. They seemed very happy to be up there. Tell us about this focus and, and how the process is working, because this is their third meeting. But I, it sounds to me like this was more of a worker bee meeting than some of the, maybe the original ones that were laying the landscape. Right. So, yeah, it's the third meeting of the principals. Okay. So you've got um, Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary Raimondo, USTR, Catherine Tai, and on the on the EU side, uh, Margaret Vestager and uh, uh, Mr. Dombrovskis. So it, really, it was the big dogs. I, yeah, I was, that's right. Yeah. I thought so, it was the worker bees, but maybe it was No, both. no, no. This is the, so that's why we would say it's the, princi- it's the meeting oh, the of the principals. principals. meeting, got it. Um, and between the meetings of the principals, there's been a whole range of meetings of the individual working groups, which we may sort of look at a little bit in, in, in a moment. But interestingly, and for the first time, more or less, not co-located, but uh, in, in, in time, uh, we had the meeting of the US Congress and European Parliament um, Transatlantic Legislators Dialogue. So it's the first time right right up against the, the TTC meeting, you've also had a meeting of the legislators from both sides of the pond. Uh, okay, so that was part of this this week as well. Correct. Okay, how what's the readout on that? Did we learn anything exciting? I mean, if you're a sort of university student doing a sort of compare and contrast note between the TLD meeting and the TTC, one one notable difference on the TLD was much more criticism with and mo- much more um, outspoken criticism with regard to China and the need for cooperation um, between. United States and the European Union on China and, you know, its its domination in the tech space particularly and its um, influence and inevitable um, consequences of its influence in the whole supply chain. So I think that was one notable big difference. On both sides? 
Yes, absolutely. I okay. mean, there was a joint declaration at the end, so it's signed by oh, both right. um, by um, Jim Costa as the head of the EU caucus in the House of Representatives, as well as the um, uh, Radovan um, Sikorsky, the, uh, the the chair of the Parliament's uh, delegation to to the for relations with the U.S. Congress. Oh, that's that's good to know. I know that um, you know here we've been very focused on that from a national security perspective here, and um, I've felt like. Europe's been like, mm, we, we hear you, but we're not sure how much we're going to do about that. Right. And I think that's that was a that was a theme we sort of looked at a bit on the last podcast, you understanding the sort of complexity of the, the European Union's sort of institutional relationships. Um, the TTC is an executive driven um, uh, body. Um, it's the commission on the European Union side, but it's it's looking over its shoulder the whole time to the member states in terms of the declaration that was signed. Um, they even had to sort of pass that by the member states in uh, through the European Council to get a sort of green light from them that, that everything was on board. The Parliament has a little bit more autonomy there um, in terms of being more forthright. I mean, it doesn't have direct responsibility in foreign, foreign affairs. Um, so maybe it's able to sort of shoot from the hip a little more and, and, and be a bit more forthright in its declarations. That's, yeah, that's good. I mean, I realized I, I was just at the Internet Governance Forum that was in um, Addis, in, yes, in Ethiopia. And, you know, we, you hear about how much money they are, the Chinese are bringing into um, Africa, not without tethers. But, right. you know, they, I mean, they are truly investing in their digital infrastructure. And you, on the ground, you really understand, like, if it's not them, no one else is bringing that money forward and their economy right. isn't one that's really driven towards making that a priority. There's a lot going on in Africa and in general, but, you know, also specifically in Ethiopia. And so you, you look at that and you think that is sort of a challenge for some countries that have got a lot of priorities on, you know, they've got to prioritize a lot of things and China's putting a lot of um, effort into making it easy to use their equipment. Their equipment is very good. It seamlessly operates, but it comes with a lot of national security risks. So Correct. Is, was that the kind of the catalyst for this process, or was it just we all are working with a little more caution? Um, I mean, overall, and we can come to this in a moment, I mean, TTC sort of came at a sort of opportune moment for okay. Transatlantic Corporation. It didn't come sort of preloaded with an agenda for specific common approaches to other regions in the world. But it's interesting, one of the one of the first parts of the declaration from um, TTC talks about US and EU cooperation for two new 5G-related projects in Jamaica and in Kenya to sort of lay, lay a, a marker, if you like, for saying, you know, this isn't just... China's backyard in terms of investment. The EU and the US is, are equally committed to investment. I mean, it's 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 a symbolic first move, but to to provide five G for sort of thousands of schools in Jamaica and Kenya, respectively, mm-hmm. I think is sort of giving a signal to the world, sort of saying, you know, we're serious about um, investing in these regions too. Oh, okay, that's that that's that's fascinating. Somebody brought up Jamaica last night, and I was like, come again? I wasn't right, quite sure yeah, that not was obvious fitting in and all of this. No. So, uh, well, in the Caribbean has always been a challenge for us in especially the telecom um, investment because yep. that's also been a very big hotbed for Chinese to put in major listening centers under the guise of they're bringing in things for their sporting equipment. So, um, so good to know. So let's get back to the the TTC. You have 10 agenda items. Um, and one thing I, I found fascinating is what uh, people will refer to as the Brussels effect. 
which is you, uh, you, you know, as a whole, the European uh, nation states will decide on a particular standard and it starts to drive the process. And sometimes we, you know, we were very, the U.S. was very involved in standard setting at the ITU for a long time. And we kind of took our foot off the gas around 2012. And um, that gave room for a lot of other entities, China being one of them, to come into play. And I think it's been interesting to see the Europeans have kind of come in in a, in a way to say, well, it's still very important what these standards are, which I completely concur with. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about what we refer to as the Brussels effect and how they, they're they managing kind of technology going forward, knowing they're not always the producer of it, but they're certainly uh, they're a, a big consumer of what's going on and how they are able to use their economic Sure. That. I mean, there, there are a couple of points here. Um, I mean, I've done a lot of work in international standardization over the years, and I've always argued that standards are not a alternative to sort of free market um, capitalism sort of determining what's best for the consumer or for regulators to determine on, on, on consumers' behalf. It's not an alternative to that. It's a complement to it. And I, I think international mm-hmm. standards provide a a sort of baseline and a foundation on which either contractual agreements, business agreements, service level agreements, as well as regulation can be built on the basis of an understanding of a common vocabulary, a common understanding of what certain things mean. Um, it's an area where I've been probably the most critical in terms of where TTC's gone. It has a whole working group on cooperation, on, on standardization. And we're faced with two very distinct and very different approaches to the role of standards, where um, the European Union has this sort of rather privileged system, this uh, what we call the European standardization system, where there's a very close relationship both with, between the European Commission as the EU's executive and the European standards organisations to basically mandate the standards organisations to come up with standards and specifications that meet specific regulatory goals. So it's, it is a little bit more driven by regulation. Whereas the tradition in the US has been much more that it's industry that's driving standardization. Um, although I, I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy and I think we overemphasize in the US um, the role of industry there because federal governments or state governments are big spenders with public procurement contracts and whatever and they have very clear sets of requirements as well. In the context of the TTC, um, everyone was looking to this third principles meeting as the one actually having some solid deliverables. Everyone was talking about the first meeting in Pittsburgh being the sort of setting the scene, agenda setting. The second principles meeting in the spring being about being very clear of what specific objectives and deliverables we're looking for. And everyone was looking to this third meeting to sort of say, well, okay, what have you got? What, what have you got materially? And I think on the standard side, it's been a bit below par in terms of expectations However, in the spring, they, at the spring meeting, they did agree to set up what they called a strategic standardization information mechanism, SSI for short. The SSI was set up to try and coordinate a little bit more, knowing that this was a bit of a sensitive space because the, the different executives have different approaches. But one of the first, I think, successes of that cooperation was in the ITU elections over the summer. Yes. And the fact that there was a very concerted effort to ensure that sort of pro-Western um, candidates won the key seats um, as, as for the new Secretary General and Director General of the, uh, of the ITU. So there was a very practical example of where they did come together. I'd put a little caveat, however, and that is that ITU is a treaty-based organization, and therefore the 
active lobbying of member states is something which is you know par for the course, like in any uh, multilateral governmental organization. However, ITU doesn't do a lot of work on standards outside of uh, spectrum allocation. It tries, and that's I think was part of the pushback with regard to China, to get involved in IoT standards, 5G, 6G, um, and so on, um, where the West were more reluctant. The other two big international standardization organizations, however, which is the IEC and, um, and uh, ISO, um, there has been less cooperation. The European Union traditionally has been, I wouldn't say lukewarm, but it waits for something to co- be approved as an ISO standard and then we'll consider, okay, maybe this is good enough for us at a European level and get it sort of harmonized or integrated into a European standard. Whereas in the US, I mean, you, you see this across industry and across government, um, there is actually, once an, there is an international standard, they will look at it and say, does this fit our requirements? If, if so, we go with it and we start using it. So I think the area of standardization, I'd give it a sort of four out of 10 for, for this time round. Okay. Um, with certainly a note from the tutor saying, you know, could do better and we look forward to better results next time. Any thoughts on the USB uh, the comments that came out, the, well, the, they're, they're uh, mandating that you have one particular cord. They're tired of specifically Apple changing the cords all the time, which... Yeah. I mean, this. I think this was badly messaged on the European side. Okay. Because they talked about <laughs> a common charger. Right. Whereas, in fact, what you're talking about is a common connector and standardizing around the USB-C right. con- connector. That connector can, can connect anything from... Um, half a watt up to, you know, 170 watt for your, you know, MacBook or, you know, large laptops. So you haven't really dealt with the problem of a common charger because nobody's going to buy a 180 watt charge just to charge your, charge your cell phone. <laughs> so you're still going to have um, problems of different chargers. That said, getting rid of the sort of spaghetti of different I, cables, I, that's got to be I feel the a, pain, but yet I appreciate that every time they change a charger, they're usually gaining some real estate that does something super fancy on my phone. So, um, I, but I, yes, I, I, I'm always inevitably missing one cord when I travel. I don't know how. It just gets out of the bag. I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there is, there is some upcoming legislation which might be subject for a, a, a future discussion on um, eco-design standards and how that's going to be impacting particularly smartphone and, and tablet market. Smart, yes. There's a lot of concerns there in the US about whether there's an, a tendency to over-regulate from the EU side. I think the EU's arguments are perfectly valid in terms of trying to cut back on um, eco-waste. But it's certainly something which is causing uh, causing a considerable amount of heartburn at the moment. Well, and at the same time that came out in Europe, Brazil was fighting with Apple for not putting a charger in every single device package when, you know, I yeah. think rightfully so they were like, you pretty much probably already have five of these, do you, yeah. you know? Um, so it was, yeah, there was interesting thoughts that were not aligned on that. Um, so another area that you are focusing on is supply chain. How is that going? I mean, that was a big hiccup during COVID. I think we learned a lot about it, but do we feel like that's smoothing out and we're thinking more, more forward thinking about it? I, I think so. I mean, it is a complex area. It's difficult for a you know, a principal's level of, of five senior execs uh, to sort of be able to resolve the, the whole world's problems around supply chain. You've got this sort of double whammy of both the, um, because of the lockdown and pandemic and, and a sort of uh, serious bottlenecks or, 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 or drying up of, of, of parts of the supply chain, coupled with the, you know, the Russian aggression and invasion of, of Ukraine. 
So the two together have presented a major challenge. I think it's good that in the statement um, they released yesterday, there was talk about and have they've shown some sort of actionable um, uh, indicators in terms of success for improving um, information exchange on supply chain to be able to alert each other, EU and US respectively, where there are potential problems in and critical parts of, of the supply chain. Um, without necessarily addressing how that would be resolved, at least the fact that more information is flowing rather than sort of saying that oh, we've got a problem but we can't share it with anyone, being a bit more frank and upfront in talking about your supply chain problems between, you know, democratic Western democracies, yeah. I think has got to be it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, especially around chips. I mean we've learned that there are certain things that if we kind of remodulated, you know, thought more about what who needs what size chip, who needs certain things. And obviously right. we have other things that are going on in the chip world with uh, you know, not, not handing over the formula for all chips to all places. but Yeah, and you've seen, if not close cooperation, you've seen um, the EU and the US working in tandem in terms of but the, the respective Chips Act in the US and, and the EU, a recognition on both sides that we have to do more to sort of French or, or bring back on on uh, bring back on board um, to our own economies the critical elements of that supply chain and chips is clearly one of those. I think that the, the bigger area is going to be on uh, rare earth materials. Um, particularly, the US is already sort of looking at that. I think it's in in Arizona they're looking at opening new uh, mining opportunities. In Europe, it's not so obvious. We don't have those sort of resources, um, but being able to look at that and try and identify and i think the russian war was was a sort of wake-up call to that to realize you know we cannot depend on non-democratic regimes for our critical parts of our supply chain we've got to be able to to, to be able to I, I don't like the term digital sovereignty but if it's understood in the sense of autonomy amongst you know, sort of um free liberal western democracies then yes we need to have much more emphasis there Okay, so not specific to the TTC, but how are things going with another acronym, the DMA, the implementation? How are you know some one of those things that we're all kind of watching and wondering? How, you know, is it going well? We you know no one's ever sure if that's like when it starts, when it's when we're when you get in trouble, when you get fined. That's what's most important. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's on the statute books and operational okay. already. Um, I think yeah, I think everyone is saying well, it's when the first case comes or the first. Uh, the first notice from the European Commission comes to a big tech company to say, you know, you're about to get a slap on the wrist. You know, it come gets real. That's when it starts getting real. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much weight to put on the, some of the noises we've heard about, you know, Twitter and Elon Musk's, new, uh, you know, his recent ownership, uh, t- taking over ownership of, um, um, you know, freewheeling approach he has to, to, to policymaker within Twitter. But, I mean, European regulators have said, you know, Mr. Musk, do remember Twitter is one of the organisations which is covered by um, by our legislation, and you, we really are expecting you to work within the law there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. They vacated uh, the um, Ireland office where they had their, um, their their privacy officer, their DPA, and they said, "No, you you have to have one of those by Correct. law if you are doing business here." And now. Yeah. They announced this week that they're doing more AI. They've got rid of their trust and safety officers and they're expecting AI to take over, which it is just 
for those of us who watch these, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's a never-ending fascination in a horror show, and at all at the same time. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting you mentioned AI because I, I, of of all the elements in the declaration, I think this is one of the more tractable elements that they've actually laid out a roadmap between the EU, US and EU on trustworthy um, AI and actually laid down um, benchmarks and measurements in order to how, how you determine whether something can be considered as trustworthy. I mean, we've had the, the broader goals set within the sort of OECD framework and the, the general principles of AI, GPA as it's known. Um, they've done good work in sort of, sort of, laying out the, the the main principles but this roadmap that the EU and US have now agreed to and has been signed off on at the level of the principles of TTC I think is a is a big uh, big step forward and it's something I think is is definitely uh, welcome so what are the next steps out of this most recent meeting what 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 goes forward um a lot of the work of the working groups um let's say there are, as you mentioned in the beginning there are sort of 10 streams actually 11 they the added AI. one. They started with ten, and they're like, well, "Yeah, we the, forgot well, one. they realized AI was split across several, so they sort of set up, in effect, a eleventh working group to deal with the AI, and we got the results on that one. So it's ironical the most tangible results have come out of a working group that didn't actually technically exist, but um, I think the the working groups, I think it's seven and eight on investment screening on export controls, those two have proven to be very effective in the response to to Russia's evasion of Ukraine. The fact that you happen to have the right people in the right place at the right time was was good. Um, if they'd had to start from scratch without TTC, it might have taken longer to get things moving on there. And the, but the fact that there were already officials from both sides um, in this working group from since Pittsburgh um, working on how we look at uh, coordination on um, export controls and investment screening. I think the fact that once the war broke out, you had the people there working on it and were able to come forward very quickly on. So I'm, I'm thinking that's going to remain a focus for as long as Russia still has troops and it still has an aggression against Ukraine, um, that that's going to remain a focus. But I think the whole areas around um, data governance, not so much in the platform regulation stuff, which is DMA and DSA, which is sort of out of scope for the TTC, but looking at the issues of um, disinformation and how state actors are using the internet to basically try and sort of either gaslight or brainwash people with with, with fake information and fake news. Um, The fact that um, there is cooperation between the two in identifying state-sponsored actors on whether from Russia or from China or elsewhere, and really working on cooperation between their various respective services to to, to isolate and take down fake sites, which are you know which are clearly operating outside of the law, is is something which I think is is an area that will conti- continue to be on our on, on our radar. Um, we we talked about secure supply chain, so I think that one's going to be, and particularly with the Chips Act is, is being approved on both sides, there'll be now a focus now on research and development work and how you can ramp up. Um, work there to get to further secure um, and, and supply that's chains. Going to be a collaborative effort, which Correct. we haven't really focused on that here in the United States, but that's important. I yeah, mean, exactly. It's really, you know, I realize it's industrial policy, but it's time. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the other area, and again, maybe I'd give it a seven seven or eight out of ten for this is You're the response. I'm a very tough <laughs> grader. Yeah, um, 
but um, yeah, just for the record, AI ten out of ten. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, is the let's call it spat over the IRA and the Inflation Reduction Act, the concern that the US was going to be from the EU's point of view, was sort of gaming the market a little bit by offering subsidies um, for, for not just for um, electrical vehicles as part of the shift towards a sort of carbon neutral economy or decarbonisation of the economy. Um, but there was a fear that by insisting that every part of the sourcing that goes towards an electric vehicle have to be sort of US-owned, US-based, um, was considered as sort of, potentially unfair and potentially, you know, uh, in violation of WTO rules. Um, so the fact that in the margins of TTC and there in the declaration, if you, you know, read the tea leaves, there is, an, there is at least a recognition that the EU was sensitive about this and they look forward to the US taking the broadest possible interpretation of the IRA in terms of sourcing and where stuff is manufactured to allow, hopefully, that... EU manufactured uh, cars, or at least the and certainly the components of of of, of cars manufactured in the e, uh, EU, would also be able to benefit from some of the um, subsidies that are being offered in the US. But uh, on the same token, both um, Secretary Raimondo and USTR uh, Thai have said, "Well, you know, we're doing our bit to support um, moving to a greener economy." Um, we're not standing in the way of the EU doing the same thing. And the EU certainly has done with it, with its um, various investment funds, looking to heavily invest in European manufacturing in a way that is carbon neutral or moving towards a sort of greener economy. Because I saw that the French just said, if um, I don't know what the time limit is, but they are going to stop the shorter flights to, uh, within France if you can take a train because it's more yeah. uh, carbon sensitive i'm not quite sure what the word is there that's going to confuse a lot of people who want to go to avignon out of out of newark they're going to be like i have to do what yeah. <laughs> i mean france france has been uh, very good in terms of long-term big project big public infrastructure investment the whole high-speed train network it is is fascinating yeah. um there is an economic aspect to that of course which is it's not cheap and people know that and, you know, some of the economics of pricing probably has to get a little bit more real as well yeah. if you're going to really encourage people. To well, I was wondering if it's one of those things where Spain and Portugal wins by default. <laughs> like somebody actually costs it out. They're like, I mean, you know, it's pretty there. It's also pretty down in Barcelona. Yeah. yeah. Spain's a different problem because it has, it's the only railway network, national railway network in Europe, which has a different gauge railway. Oh. So it's only the high-speed train, okay. which runs on the common European high-speed Tracks. Learned so Whereas much. within within Spain, it was actually developed by Franco during the Civil War to stop any potential imports of arms oh. or whatever, and and or weapon, weaponry from through through France. Uh, it's a fascinating story in its own right. Well, we're going to have to learn that on another day. We it's been <laughs> so good to have you on. We will look forward to have you. I'm sure again in 2023. Always interested in the work you're doing in general, but especially the work you're doing on um, artificial intelligence. So thank you for being a guest again today on Explain to Shane. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.